the Show Me the Money Hockey Podcast. Jonathan Davis and Hart Levine with you as always. And uh, in this episode, we catch up with Jim Nice from CAA Hockey. He is the man that handles all the contracts and a guy that I've known for over 20 years in heart. I had no idea how he got into the business. And as you'll hear in our interview with him, I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, very interesting. As he mentioned, he's not very Googleable, and uh, you know most people have heard of of Pat Brisson and JP Barry. They're number one and number three on the agent leaderboard. Um, but for most people in the hockey world, they know that Jim Nice is sort of the man behind the scenes, doing most of the heavy lifting on the contracts and the negotiation. Um, so he's a, he's a very important person. Uh, yeah, in hockey, that that I think the casual fan maybe ha- haven't heard of, and his path into hockey is. Uh, you know, unique and, and different. I, as we've heard in our various episodes, everyone sort of has their own way into hockey and and his is uh, just as probably the only one that uh, he's one of a kind in the way he did it. Well, you know, and even even the guy that he works for in Pat Brisson, this is a guy that started out washing cars in LA, come a long way since then. So up next, our interview with Jim Nice. Very excited to be joined by our guest here. He is Jim Nice from CAA and the man that I'm going to call the brains behind the organization. I think you are the smartest guy in the room. I've known you for, God, I think, Jim, it's going to make us sound really old, but over 20 years. Yeah, since we were in kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but welcome to the Show Me the Money Hockey Podcast. And Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's just start things off with, I, I guess my first question is, Jim, as long as I've known you, I don't think either Hart or I have any idea, how did you get started doing what you're doing? <laughs> so... Um, you know, I, I came out here, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, played hockey my whole life, came out to California with dreams of not playing any, doing anything with hockey. Uh, just wanted to come place someplace warm after living in Buffalo for 18 years. And I went to USC, worked at USC for a few years. And through uh, a couple of lucky bounces, I met Pat Brisson, uh, and we, we got together for what was essentially an informational interview. I wanted to understand how he got in the business, how he got his start. And we hit it off really well, and I went back to work. I thought nothing nothing would come of it. And a couple of weeks later, he called me and asked me if I was interested in being his assistant. Now, I had never been anyone's assistant before. <laughs> I didn't know what that entailed. Um, he, I often joke with him. I say, he, you know, at the time, I told him that I would work for free if I could. And he's been holding me to that <laughs> ever since. <laughs> uh, but we, uh, yeah, I, I thought at that time, I was like, if I don't go now, if I don't take this chance now, uh, I may never get another chance. What, to, what kind of work were you doing at SC at the time? I was re- managing the telephone fundraising program. So I had like 60 students that worked for me. And, um, you know, it was, it was something that I, I did that as a student. I made phone calls to alumni as a student and I sort of fell into it, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do when I graduated. And because uh, I decided, although I majored in finance, I decided I didn't want to work in I'm going to go to Wall Street and do that whole thing. And so, yeah, when I met Pat, it was pretty small. Like, he had a bunch of other businesses. He was involved in the Isoplex rinks, which I know, J.D., you know you know all about that. And uh, But I think we only had 12 NHL players at the time. But for me, it was, the timing was really good because although I'm not a lawyer, uh, I have a pretty good knack of understanding all that legal garbage that's in the CBA. <laughs> and they had just come out of the 94, 95 lockout. And it was the first time that the league and the union had a proper collective bargaining agreement. It was only 110 pages 
you know, now I know I, hard. I know you've <laughs> thumbed, thumbed plenty of through the, the most recent, the yeah. 650 page one that we have now. Um, but it was perfect timing for me. That's wasn't Pat's forte. That was mine. And so it enabled me to, to grow really quickly in the, in the job. And I probably wasn't that great of an assistant, but luckily I had this other skill set that allowed me to, to get out of that chair pretty fast. What were some of the things you did at first when you went to work for Pat? Other than like picking up his dry cleaning yeah. and getting his car washed. <laughs> yeah, or, or was that the main part? And then you no, it was there was a, the it was a, the great thing about that time was that Pat was he's like here are all the files, here's everything. Just you know absorb everything you can. Uh, I was involved in everything from marketing deals, uh, both for players and for Isoplex, helping sell Dasher boards. And um, he was in the middle of some, the Billboard Live nightclub was being built and he was involved in that. And so I, I got to learn a ton of things that I, I wouldn't have had had an opportunity to learn. Like I would say that today, like when we have a young Young people want to ask me about the business and how I came up, and it's so much more specialized now that like their experience as a young, you know, wannabe agent is much different than mine was. Jim, I, when when you look back at those ten contracts that you had, ten or twelve contracts, did you ever like did you look at them and say, "Hey, Pat, when we negotiate this guy's next deal, you know, we got to look for X and not Y. There's something about the deal that we need to do differently." Um, you know, it's hard to say because at that time, like Pat was not that experienced either as an agent, right? He had only been doing, been partners with Steve and Tom Rich for maybe three or four years when I met Pat. And Tom was this legendary baseball agent and he had all this experience in negotiating contracts that, that neither Pat nor I had. I, I think what my strong suit at that time really was was the ability to write uh, write good proposals and also just find find little things that and yeah as as the business is growing and more and more stats are available it's it's become even more of a, of a thing where you just sort of find these small separators for uh, the first contract we ever did was it's kind of a funny story we it was brad a player named brad isvister who's a third round yeah. pick of the winnipeg jets who then they moved. He was drafted in '95, signed in '96 in the fall of '96 when they were in their first year in Arizona. And at that time, the junior return deadline was like the day before the season was supposed to start, and the deadline was midnight. Now all the deadlines are five five o'clock Eastern usually, um, <clears throat> so it was midnight local time. So we were at the office in Santa Monica. I don't know if you remember that old office, JD. Yes, you do. Fourth fourth and broadway and we we were packing up all of our stuff and we're like well and the team i believe the team was they were going somewhere they were going to sweden they were going to japan there was some they were going somewhere to start the season and we thought izzy had made the team but we didn't have a deal yet and we're packing up all our stuff we're ready to go and it was at 11 50 mike o'hearn whose son, Chris, now works for Minnesota, um, called, and we ended up finalizing the deal at, literally at like two minutes to midnight. Wow. And that was the first contract we ever did together. Wow. <laughs> it's a good start. 
So then you learned uh, yeah. try to not do it at the last second, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Although sometimes that's when, you know, when you get the best deals sometimes. All right, Jim, just, you know, when you, when you look at just the client list that you guys have, and for those who aren't familiar, you know, you guys have got heavy hitters, you, whether it's Sidney Crosby or Patrick Kane or, or Jonathan Taves or Anze Kopitar, um, you know, Dougie Hamilton, the list goes on and on. What, you know, for you, like, what, what's the hardest part um, that keeps, what keeps you up at night when you were trying to negotiate some of these bigger deals for these clients? I mean, every deal, I think you and I have talked about this before, JD, but every deal's unique to unto itself, right? And every player, <clears throat> for me, the, the goal is always to identify what the player wants and whether or not that coincides with what the team wants. I, I, one of the things that it's kind of funny, like when I first started in the business, I read the book, You Can Negotiate Anything, which is like some old salesman's book from the seventies or something. And it's a lot of, you know, sort of old school techniques. But one thing that I take with me to this day, is I said that, that when you're in a negotiation, you're not necessarily at cross purposes, right? You know, it's not, it's not, I win, you lose. It's, you win what you want and I win what I want. And those two things are not mutually exclusive from one another. And so for us, for me, I, we want to understand what, what's most important to the player. It's not, it's almost never the most amount of money, right? That's almost never what's most important to the player. The team also has things that are important to them, whether that's structure or whether they need to put cash in the back end or the front end or, you know, they're, managing their cap depending on which team it is and so the good news is when you're negotiating with someone over a player generally speaking the mutual goal is that you want the player wants to be there and the team wants to sign the player right so you actually have the same goal and it's just fine fine-tuning those points to find like okay well this is important to me so i need this and i'll give up this on the other end in order to get there this is a follow-up you know you talk about money not always being the most important thing uh the, the just remind the listeners, I mean, Sid, Sid's deal, the 8.7 at the time was based upon his birthday, correct? That that was part of what right. went into it. You right. ever wish that he had a December birthday? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, he probably does. I mean, you know, Sid, Sid's never, never once regretted anything. You know, like, you know, at the time, so his first contract coming out of entry level was you know, second biggest percentage of cap contract that had been signed under the cap system. You know, Brad Richards had signed the first yeah. contract and he got the full 20% and no one's ever gotten a 20% since. Um, but Sid's always been like, I know that I need to leave space so I can win. Right. The second contract, the current contract he's on currently, you know, we have to also remember that was at a time when those long contracts were allowed. And so that's what everyone was doing. So keeping the cap hit low yeah. in order to, spread it out and and you know Sid had come off of essentially a year and a half of no hockey right um with his concussion issues and so there was that was looming in the background too i don't think sydney thought at the time that he'd still be one of the best players in the world at you know almost 34 years old i think he was like oh i probably won't play the end of that contract now he's like i probably will play you know he's having fun He's still elite. And I know Sid, like I, I have a, my sense is Sid will, the day he's not elite is the day he's going to retire. He's not mm -hmm. going to, 
hang around for a couple of years and have 35 points. I don't, I don't see it. Hmm. Um, so, you know, your, your partners, uh, Pat and JP, they get a lot of the sort of press and the headlines, but a lot of most people in the industry know, um, the integral role that you play. Could you just share like how, how the team works and what you're responsible for, um, with the group there at CA? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I joked that I, I did a class at USC um, and uh, someone said that, you know, you're not Googleable. And I said, I'm not Googleable by design. Right? <laughs> um, there, we have an, a perfect team, the three of us, um, in terms of negotiating contracts. For me, depending on the player, depending on the team, I might be the primary person to negotiate the contract. Pat or JP might be. Also depends on the profile of the player. Sometimes um, that matters. And then, but I'm involved in every contract negotiation, doing all the research, preparing proposals if we have to write a proposal. Um, Now a lot, a lot more time goes into preparing the player also. Mm. As sites like yours, Heart, have grown in popularity and you know you've provided a lot of information to a lot of people which is good and bad <laughs> for us <laughs> right um because that makes everyone an expert in some ways uh but players players know what everyone else makes they have an idea of 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 what they're worth what they feel they're worth uh, of course they only ever talk about the players that are getting paid a lot that they're, <laughs> that they're better than, not the guys who are getting less that they're not as good as, which, you know, those, and, and so part of a big part of our uh, education process now is, is sitting down and putting proposals in front of players. So we can see like, this is the landscape and here's your rights and here's where the leverage points are. And here's why this player may get more money, you know, all things being equal because they have a little more leverage or they have less leverage. And so, and, and educating the guys as much as we are preparing for the negotiations with the team. You talk about everything being, you know, every deal is, is unique to itself, but share with, share with the, with me and the list and heart and everybody, look, you made me sit outside your offices for three days <laughs> for the John Tavares negotiation. What was that experience like for you being on the inside? Had you ever been through anything like that? No, we had never been the closest thing we ever had to that was probably when Danny Breer was a free agent and Montreal had sent someone to fly into LA to deliver him these gifts. And he was not making a pitch to them as much as delivering their, the pitch. And we took a, a lot of calls for Danny on that July 1st, but the, the experience with John was unique for us. We, at that time, we we're like, okay, we're not going to, travel around and take John to all these different cities. We're going to have them come to us. Um, and it was exhausting. I know it was exhausting for you standing out in 90 degree heat in the middle of century, century, the Avenue of the stars there, JD. But uh, I think we sent you some water and some sunscreen. Yes, at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it was so interesting to learn how each team operates and, what the teams thought were going to be important to John, right? And each team had a different approach. Each team, I mean, they were all ex- extremely thorough, uh, very interesting. I think in some ways, I don't know that it made John's decision any easier to have all those teams come in. Um, but it was, 
for us, it was like, okay, this is now we have some more insight into the way Tampa operates. So we have more insight into the way Boston works. And, you know, some teams, John had relationships with players and players were calling in. And then some, we had some owners there, some owners we didn't have there. I mean, it was, I think I told you this, JD, that we had the owner from San Jose was, had been in Laguna beach and he got in a car and he drove up two hours in morning traffic so he could sit in on the meeting. And it was really fascinating just to see how as an owner who's involved, but also let Doug Wilson run the show. It was, it was really fascinating for us. It was, it was a great learning experience and exhausting. I mean, at the end of that week, I was, you're like, just, just hurry up and pick. I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plus, you know, we just had the draft and it was, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. What was that. something like unique to what Toronto did? Um, that, you know, just what was something that they did? You know, was there, did they bring in a celebrity into it? Like, was there a video that included celebrities or? No, they, they did do a video, um, which we, which we, uh, we sat in the screening room at our offices today and watched and it, it like I grew up in Buffalo and I, I grew up hating the Leafs and even I was like, well, this is pretty awesome. <laughs> like, it was, you know, it just made, it just, it put, it put John into the fabric of the history of that team. Mm. And there's no question like that, that part of it, that also they do have an amazing young roster and, you know, they, he was going to play with Mitch Marner and, it was they they did all the things right when it came to the hockey part of it, but that emotional part of it, I think, was it was pretty special. I, I have tons of respect for Kyle Dubas too. He's he's you know as a guy who came in young and unproven, uh, he to me like you know, everybody makes mistakes, roster mistakes, whatever contract mistakes, but in, in terms of the way he conducts himself, is is top top class. Um, so you, you mentioned kind of your first deal, um, is Bister. Is there a deal that you're the most proud of or that you found the most satisfying, you know, maybe not the biggest dollar deal, but there was one that, you know, just felt good when you got the, the a number you didn't think you'd get, or it was for the guy you're happy for the deal. Yeah, there is actually. Um, so Danny Breer was, we often joke that we came up into the business together because he, my first summer working for Pat is, was his first summer coming to LA to train. And, you know, he was 17, he hadn't been drafted yet. And we just became buddies. And so as his career grew, as did mine, which was, so it's kind of like mirrored each other. He's 10 years younger than me. Um, but we, we came up kind of through the ranks together. And the one thing, so, when he was in Buffalo and he was captain of the Sabres, that's my hometown team. Yeah. It was really emotional for me. Um, and we went to arbitration. He had come off uh, a year where I think he had 54 points in 48 games. Uh, he had hernia surgery that year, but it was, he was becoming the player that, that everyone recognized him as. And we went into arbitration expecting to get, you know, probably around, probably around four, four and a quarter. And we ended up getting a result of 5 million, which is, you know, a home run for us. And I did so much work on that case with, uh, with Roland Lee at the players association. And 
it, it was really, really satisfying. It's because partially because I was so close to Danny, and also obviously because uh, it was a big number for us. I guess with the like the arbitration award, it's the the one or rare time where there actually is like a neutral like scorekeeper that tells you right, who, yeah, exactly, who, who had the exactly. better case. And uh, you know, normally it's just you have to you have to give in or or the other person has to give in but kind of yeah it's the one place where there's like a referee to tell you if you if you right, want right? right yeah it's actually you can actually like sort of register your win or your loss yeah. jim is is negotiating with lou lamorello like trying to negotiate with your dad <laughs> like <laughs> you know it's lou is so fascinating to me he's first of all like i hope i have as much energy as <laughs> as he does at his age um Lou is, people always think of Lou as being difficult, right? As this reputation of being, being sort of a hard ass, if I can say that on this uh, PG rated podcast. <laughs> um, but he, the thing is, you always know where he stands, always. And he's always respectful. He'll never, like, I can't imagine ever getting into a shouting match with Lou because he's very, logical in his approach and that's sort of how i am too I, I try not to get too emotional about about things and and like i said if he says this is this is it this is where i stand you know he's not full of it he's not going to change his mind and and so it, it makes it easy even though it can be difficult right even though it's like maybe you can consider him stubborn or whatever but at least you know where he stands and that's not always the case so you might not agree with his number, but you know, this is the offer. We can take it or we can do something else, right? Right. And right, so exactly. are there other GMs where it's sort of the opposite where you have to, you know, that you, you got to keep pushing in this kind of a big show that this is it. And yeah, there, there are. And I think sometimes it's interesting to see, you know, I've been doing this now, this is my 26th summer and I'm sure people would say this about me too, but there you see the, growth and the change of people as they get more comfortable, more confident, um, you know, less need to prove themselves, especially like maybe younger guys, or younger AGMs that are lawyers that come out of, you know, and they're like, I'm going to prove how smart I am. Mm -hmm. And, and over time they, you know, it becomes easier. And you mentioned Jeff Solomon yeah. um, when we were talking before we started uh, from the Kings and, and Jeff, I mean, I probably had more knockdown dragouts with Jeff, but at the same time, at the end, we just like she can shake hands, have a beer, and joke around. And so, you know, it's it, it just some personalities are that way. But you know, I I don't. There's not too many where I'm like, God, oh, geez, I don't trust that guy. Yeah. What about what about Mark Bergevin? I mean, there's a long relationship with Mark and, and you guys. So what's it like? You know, especially even like this summer. You know, just negotiating the Tyler Toffoli deal this past summer. It, you know, Burge, Burge and Pat are very similar, um, not just because they're both French Canadian, they're really good friends, but they're also um, react on emotion. Uh, they're more emotional. John Sedgwick, who is like the me of the Canadians, right? Um, he's become a good friend of mine. So a lot of like Burge and Pat will talk and they'll get into an argument over something. And then me and Sedgwick will have like more, a more calm, like, well, this is why I can't do this. And this is why we can't do that. And Ultimately, like Pat always says, he's like, well, Burge is going to listen to Sedgy and I'm going to listen to you. So <laughs> you guys figure <laughs> you know, it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Burge and, you know, Burge, is one of the first, probably one of the first clients I ever met when I started working, you know, all those years ago. So he's, he's, he's a good friend and 
and I'm, I'm happy for the success. Jim, so many ex great experiences I'm sure you've had over the years. I wanted to take you back in time to the World Stars Tour back in the IMG days. What do you remember most about that little, that venture? Because um, you had a pretty, pretty impressive roster back then that you guys traveled. Yeah, we did. I mean, I, I will say, the thing I remember the most is lack of sleep. <laughs> Uh, because we were in a new city every night and there was no chance I was not going to experience this new city every, every time we went out. We had so many, uh, Dominic Koshik and Marty Brodeur and Anson Carter was with us and Ian LaPerriere and Matt Sundin joined us in Sweden. And, uh, it, it, Danny Barrera played against us in Switzerland and then he joined us in Prague <laughs> to play for our team. And it, it was it was so much fun. And, you know, I got to see, I mean, we went to Riga, Moscow, St. Petersburg, three cities in Sweden. Uh, we went to uh, Katowice, Poland, which is like a half hour from Auschwitz Bergnau camp, which we which we visited, which was like an experience that I'll never ever forget. You know, being there in that miserable place on a what was also a miserable day weather-wise, four days before Christmas, and it just like it takes your breath away that people that. People actually survive. Were able to survive living through that. Forget, like even if you forgot all the atrocities, it's like just the just being in this terrible barracks in this terrible weather situation. Like I, it's it was. I mean, it gives me the chills talking about it now. It's like just a like a life changing experience, um, and it's something I'll never forget. On the lighter side, though, you had three goalies, and and one being. Ray Whitney's dad, who was pressed yeah. because I was told one of your goalies was just a little hungover. Couldn't play. That may be the case. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, Marty Brodeur is the most, one of the most competitive people I've ever seen. And he wanted to play every game. And Dominic Hoshik was with us. And Dominic Hoshik sleeps more than any human I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. The guy probably sleeps 20 hours a day. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the Dominator was like, I can't play. I'm not going to play tonight. <laughs> Too tired. <laughs> So yeah, uh, uh, Witt's dad was forced into action. Floyd, right? Uh, he's a yeah. He's famous in Edmonton. I'm from Edmonton. Yeah, 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 yeah. He he was, he was great. What a, it's just there's so many little stories like that too that that are you know like you remind me. I we were in Norway and there was a player named Anders Mirvold who we represented when he played in North America and we were going to play against his team. So he said to me and Patty, he says, "Why don't you guys come out and skate with our?" our team in the morning i was like oh that'll be fun you know let's run some drills and whatever and you know this, these drills are so complicated <laughs> like, i just go i was like uh, andy i'm done i gotta go sit down i can't keep up with the with this complicated drill it's not the simple drills that we're used to in north america <laughs> i want to quickly just ask you i know we're running short on time but the caa camp that you guys do every summer it's not this is where you know, for people don't know, I mean, this is where you've got your future stars are, are coming out. And uh, I mean, look, I can remember being at the camp and before Nathan McKinnon was Nathan McKinnon and Seth Jones was Seth Jones. And um, it, it is, it's pretty incredible, but two quite two fold question. One, was there a guy over the years that really surprised you on where he's come to from where he was at the camp, just, uh, you know, where, how he's grown in the game and two, just, what was the whole genesis behind why CAA wanted to have this type of camp? 
I'll start with number two first, because I have to think a little bit about number one. But so I mentioned meeting Danny Breer my first summer working with Pat. That was the first ever camp we'd ever done. And I think it was it was five or six players. It was Mirvold, the, the Norwegian player. It was Danny, Jason Doig, Christian Laflamme, uh, and Christian Dubé, who was, you know, directed by the New York Rangers. And we had Michelle Terrian <laughs> as the guy who ran our on ice. And we worked out with T.R. Goodman at Gold's Gym. And we just took guys around town. We went to the movies and just, you know, it was such a small group. But the idea was always, it was, for us, it was twofold. One, at that time, we never really saw the guys or, you know, you go to a junior game and you see them for a couple of minutes and it was difficult to, it was an opportunity for us to really get to know the players as people and just introduce them to this world of, of particularly off ice training at that time. It was, you know, a lot of guys weren't doing it. You had a nutritionist speak to them and just the, the idea was like, we're going to, even then, I don't know if we had articulated it this way, but it was like, we knew that the thing that was going to keep people from guys, most of these guys from making it was not something on ice, right? These are all elite hockey players. The thing was going to be, oh, they don't train properly or they're injury. They get injured too much because they, don't understand stretching or they don't sleep well enough or they don't eat well enough. And we wanted to sort of build a base for them so that like, this is what it takes to be a pro. And at that time at gold's gym with TR, there was you know, half dozen to a dozen NHL stars and Chris Chelios and Jeremy Roenick and Rob Blake. And these guys were all training with TR. And so to be in that environment for the first time, a lot of times it was the first time these guys had ever met a professional hockey player and say like, okay, now I know what it takes. And over the years, obviously, it's evolved. And JD, you've been around the camp, and you've seen the kinds of things that we do now. And and um, you know, I'm proud to say that almost every major agency has copied our idea and has doing their own camps. Um, but yeah, we were the first, and I think we're still the best because we're always trying to incorporate new things um, as the game changes. As as you know, players come in now; they're they've already had trainers for two or three years. They they, some of them have nutritionists. They, they have a more a better understanding of, of that part of it, but they still, they still need to know the, all these little things that it takes to be a pro. And we just want to move up and take some of those hurdles out of their way so that they can focus on you know, their bodies and their training and their, and their hockey and, and not worry about all this sort of other stuff that can get in the way of making the difference whether or not they make it or not. Um, I wanted to ask, so, you know, we hear, uh, we know that the NHL needs to start generating new revenue to, to kind of make up for the last year or so, you know, through gambling or sponsorships. One, one side, though, that um, we've seen picking up steam is players selling their NFTs or digital collectible mm -hmm. highlights. Um, is that something that you guys are, are looking at? Is that kind of the future and in, in some ways allows the players to be their own sort of entrepreneur and not uh, be having to share it all with? with the PA or, or the, the league? We are, we are looking at it. Um, we're, we're taking the approach that it's better to be right than first. Um, and honestly, it, it's like every other, like, I don't really understand it. I don't know why someone would pay $200,000 for a video you watch on YouTube over and over again for free, but it's happening. Right. And so we're, you know, and I, as someone's, 
it's one of my friends says, well, these kids today, they live on the internet, right? And so like the way we used to collect hockey cards, they're collecting these NFTs. And the thing about it is, I think for us, or for any player, certain players will be able to make a lot of money and certain players won't, right? Certain players can make a lot of money off the ice selling Gatorade and then a bunch, most of them can't. And I think that's probably the case for most of these NFTs as well. Like it's, it's just like people love to talk about it because, you know, they, LeBron James is, sells for $200,000 or whatever it was. And, but I think you have to be careful, right? You have to pick, it's going to be the right player at the right time and, and the right sort of uh, add-ons. It has to be a unique thing. Right. Um, and we'll, you know, I think we'll, we, we're going to do it. We just have to decide when it's the right time or what the right player and the right situation is. Jim, just last one from me here. Um, you guys have a couple of big deals to, to deal with this summer. You've got Pedersen and Hughes and Barry and Hamilton and all different. Uh, just a, I, I don't know which one is going to be more, tr- you know, trickier. You know, we keep hearing that you know Vancouver's basically budgeted, you know, for their free agents and how they how that pie gets divided. You're, you guys will definitely factor in that. But a guy like Tyson Barry who bet on himself, um, just. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, just talk about that situation, if you would, and um, just where you see, you know, have you guys started talks uh, with with uh, the Oilers? We haven't really. I mean, just some preliminary conversations with the Oilers. I mean, obviously, Tyson's choice to sign in Edmonton was a good one for him personally. I mean, you know, as an offensive player, I guess the best place to play is with the two best offensive players in the world. Um <laughs> And, and it's been a, a, you know, he's had a, a really good year there. Uh, it's, again, it goes back to sort of that sort of that whole idea, like what's important to Tyson versus what's important to Edmonton if we want to stay there or, you know, what's going to happen with Seattle is obviously coming in the summer and it's, it's you know, that's 23 new, more jobs that weren't, weren't there a year ago. Uh, and managing you know, Tyson's 29. And so, you know, like term is going to be important to him, but term, as you get older, term is harder to get from, from teams. And so it's, there's a balancing act that goes into, again, like it's not necessarily the most money, right? Is it better to sign for a little less somewhere where you're going to be happy or do you just have to have the most money all the time? And maybe five years is better at a lower AAV then four years is a higher AV and the money sort of, you know, balances out. And so it's all, those are the kinds of decisions that we'll make with Tyson. Hopefully the season's not over tomorrow for, for him. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, once the season's over, we'll have a, have a chance to sit down and really decide what, what, what he wants to do. And then, and if it's, if it is, I'd like to stay in Edmonton first and foremost, then try to figure out if that's something that we can make happen. And with with Vancouver and Pedersen and Hughes, I mean, you had something similar with Kane and uh, Taves in Chicago, right? Where you know normally if there's a couple of big stars on a team and you guys have one, you're almost uh, you know a little bit competing with the other agent and player for how that pie gets divvied up. How does it change the approach when you, you sort of have the whole pie that you're you're working <laughs> on with the uh, with the GM and, and and how it goes? I mean, you know, what the Chicago circumstance, you know, Chicago was very upfront about we want to treat 
Patrick and Jonathan exactly the same way. And that negotiation in terms of getting to the number was relatively easy. Um, with, with Petey and Quinn, it's a little different because they play different positions. And so the market is different for them. Um, and again, it goes down to like, Hey, we have to work with the team to see like, can they afford to, you know, in terms of term, they have some cap issues. Like, do we want to go long-term with one and short-term with the other? Do we, do both players want short-term both players? Want? Um, it, it, it's, it's going to depend a lot on that. We've had some preliminary conversations with both of the players uh, and we almost started with Vancouver, but then there was all these rumors that Jim Benning was going to be let go and Travis Green is going to be let go. And, uh, you know, they're both going to be back. So that's going to open up the conversation a little bit. Now, at least we know we have some stability. The players know what to expect. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen overnight for either of those, those guys. Um, obviously they're, the two most important players on that team. And so we're lucky to be in those conversations with both of them. And like you said, we can, we can sort of take the whole pie and exactly. figure, out how, figure out how we want to slice it up. But do those, like, is that something with the, well, just to wrap then, will there be a conversation that you'd have with the three, like the two of them and just say, you know, will you, will they work together on this or, or are these really separate deals? But they're, they're separate. They're separate. I mean, I if they were played the same position, it might be a little bit easy. Um, more of a, you know, because there's this distinct market for forwards and there's a distinct market for defensemen, and then it's going to, you know, depend on term to see where which where each of those deals goes. But they won't, you know, be very surprised if they're identical the way Canaan Caves were, the way the Sidians were back in the day. Jim, thanks so much. I know you got a busy day. All right, bud, have a good one. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. I appreciate having me on. Well, hope you enjoyed that really interesting discussion with Jim Nice from CAA. Um, if you've missed past episodes, uh, last one was Matthew Barnaby, former NHL player and um, puck disturber and betting <laughs> expert. Uh, we had Chris Johnson from Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Make sure, though, if you, uh, if you subscribe to the podcast, then they'll automatically download uh, for you. You won't miss the next one. Um, and if you can reach out to us on Twitter, I'm at Puckpedia. Jonathan's at West Coast Hockey. And the, the Twitter account is Show Money Hockey Pod. If you can reach out to us and, and ask us some questions that you have about the CBA, salary cap, business of hockey, we'd like to do a mailbox, uh, a mailbag episode at some point and, and answer a bunch of your questions. So please tweet at us and, uh, and we'll take them up on a future episode. Yeah, nothing too complicated, guys, because we're not very bright, the two of us. But and not too personal either. Yeah. Keep it, keep it business hockey. Yeah, keep it business hockey. <laughs> for Hart Levine in L.A. and for me, Jonathan Davis here in L.A., you've been listening to another episode of the Show Me the Money Hockey Podcast.